Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com doctor rating website. Our healthcare system is very complex with doctors, drug companies, insurers, and sometimes it's hard to know if we're getting the best possible healthcare. On our show today, we have Dr. Evan Levine, a practicing internist and cardiologist, who's written a book, What Your Doctor Won't or Can't Tell You. This book talks about how how medicine in America has deteriorated and how it's harder and harder to find the best possible health care. Now, before we start, I just want to warn our listeners that this show is going to take a a look at the dark side of medicine. Um, It has a a bleaker view than most of the shows uh, that we've done on this program. Dr. Levine, welcome to our program. Well, thank you. So, um, well, let's get started. Tell us, how how can patients find a good doctor? Well, I can tell you it's getting far more difficult to find a good physician, uh, an internist, which is uh, the gatekeeper, um, because very few of the best uh, uh, medical students want to go into internal medicine because um, it, it's a very difficult job and the, the payments aren't that, uh, that good these days. And What I've noticed, uh, just to go off topic slightly, um, in the areas that I practice, that there are some areas of small cities where 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of the physicians out there, the internists and the general practitioners are... Uh, are uh, well, for lack of a better word, uh, doing bad things uh, uh, just to uh, stay afloat and make money. Um, having said that, that difficult task, uh, um, there, there is a way of finding a decent physician. And one of the things I would try to do is to try to find a physician. And I've said this before, and it's not very popular, but that's affiliated with the university medical center. Um, the centers um, vet their uh, physicians a little bit better than some of the uh, smaller clinical hospitals. And that's because some of these small clinical hospitals are in desperate need to fill their beds. And they're in such desperate need, they'll accept anyone on their staff to fill the beds. So for me, one of the things I want to know is, does your physician uh, admit to a university hospital? At least that, anyway. Having said that, um, uh, you're going to have to go see this physician. I mean, you can ask friends and relatives, and, and that may help a little bit. Um, uh, and I'd also ask if you know someone. And I think the most important thing uh, is if you know a, uh, a physician in the family or a friend or a nurse and ask them who do they go to. I mean, because they've got some knowledge and, and, and they understand where to go to. What, that's one of the couple of things I would do to start off. Uh, finally, I would ensure that the physician accepts your insurance. 
Um, I know a lot of people out there say, well, the best physicians, they may not be in my insurance plan. Um, and surely enough, uh, some of the physicians are opting out of these HMOs and other insurers because they just, you know, they don't pay them a reasonable amount of money. But nevertheless, there are still some very good in, uh, physicians that will accept your insurance. That's the first thing I would do um, if I if I was a patient out there and I was looking for a doctor. You, I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I'm going to go back over a couple of these things. Um, so it's hard to find a good internist in part because people are choosing other fields. I mean, I chose dermatology, which is probably like the opposite of choosing internal medicine and um, we have no trouble filling our ranks of dermatologists with the best and the brightest of, of America's Absolutely. medical schools. And uh, I guess it is to, to some extent people are looking for a reasonably well-paying, reasonably easy kind of life. Um, at the same time, I guess perspective pays a large part of this. Being at a, a university, I see all kinds of great internists, but... Um, I guess I'm at the university, so the ones I would be seeing would be some of the best of the best to begin with, huh? Right. You see, um, that's the world you live in, and that's the world I lived in until um, I left uh, my fellowship and went out into the community. Um, I decided to become a cardiologist out in the community, and in the hospital I was working actually sent us out to a community in Yonkers, which is just north of New York City, and I really was shocked to believe the type of physicians that were practicing out there. I did expect uh, less academic physicians. That was without question. I was not that naive, you know, uh, and no offense to anyone, but, uh, you know, a higher percentage of foreign medical grads and, um, and uh, osteopaths rather than MDs, and that was quite acceptable. But what I didn't expect what I didn't really expect is this crowd of just duplicitous thugs out there, <laughs> okay, that are truly preying on patients and are making backroom deals with a lot of these subspecialists, backroom deals, uh, you know, consults for in exchange for some sort of uh, remuneration, uh, I, either it's in the form of rent or, or what have you. That's what I was shocked about. Um, so, yes, there's another world out there in the community centers, and um, it's, a, it's an unfortunate world, and I think it's part of the problem with the healthcare system, not just with the quality of care, but the cost of care, because these types of duplicitous physicians are, are causing a tremendous amount of uh, extra cost to the system. Um, <clears throat> Because when they make these backroom deals with cardiologists and pulmonologists and gastroenterologists, I mean, there's more money that needs to go back and forth. And, and so what happens is, uh, if, uh, for example, a cardiologist, uh, he's renting space in five different offices, instead of a quid pro quo, so he gets cases from the internist, he's got to come up with more cases to pay the rent. And so that cardiologist may be ordering too many nuclear stress tests or too many echoes, or the pulmonologist, too many pulmonary studies, or the GI person, too many colonoscopies, and so on and so forth. And you can just see the escalation of cost here. Um, that's something you don't see so much in the academic center, 
where there's more eyes on the physician. Yeah. Dr. Um, Levine, I, you know, I've, I've read this aspect of your book, and I understand, um, I believe I understand the, specific, the specifics of, your, of what you're saying, but I'm not sure our, our, our audience will, will understand. Cause so, you, so you've really talked about two levels of, of duplicity here. Let's, let's talk about them one at a time. So this cardiologist, the specialist who's renting offices from five primary care docs, that doesn't sound like a problem necessarily, um, but, but I, your book makes clear that it is. Tell us about that. Well, imagine, again, he's renting space from five different offices, and these offices, uh, perhaps they're a five-minute drive from each other. So there's no particular reason for him to do that. I mean, the patients can come to any office they wish. It's not a big distance. So he's but doing it. Happens. He's doing it to pay these primary care doctors off in order yeah. to get referrals from those doctors. How can he somehow get around the system? He can't give cash for patients. I mean, it'd be, it'd be quite obvious that he's breaking the law. Yeah. So, so, so okay, do, he could send like a holiday gift at the end of the year. That would be okay. But sending cash payments, you can't do that. And this this rental system paying above market rent rates for an office you might not even ever use. Correct. It's a way it's an to easy way to get a. It's a way to, you know, uh, covertly uh, get around the system. So he passes on a rent check to the internist. Let's say it's two or three times the market rate. Let's say the lease says he's there three or four days a week when he's only there a half day a week. And he passes on that rent check. Now, let's say the rent check, he's got an overhead that's five or six times what it should be, right? Mm -hmm. And he's got to make up for that. And an internist, how many patients can a single internist supply to a cardiologist legitimately? Well, these internists are in bed with the cardiologist, so they're going to send consults to the cardiologist that perhaps ordinarily shouldn't go there, that perhaps the internist should, you know, be able to, uh, to care for by himself. And then again, here goes the test, the echoes, the nuclear stress test, etc. cetera. Um, and it's been devastating not only to the patient, not only to the overall cost of health care, but it's been devastating to me, Evan Levine. It's been devastating to me for a number of reasons, and that's why I'm sort of upset about this, aside from the horrible patient care. But let's face it, I have to worry about myself as well. So what has happened is, in these smaller community areas, where one of the areas where I practice, I've lost consults because I'm not going to rent space from the physician that used to send patients to me, and lo and behold, there appears a doctor in their office, and that my consults are lost. That's number one. Number two, big business, big insurers, and Medicare take a look at these numbers, and they say, oh, my goodness, we spent so and so millions of dollars last year or billions of dollars, I don't know the exact numbers, on nuclear stress tests because the number of nuclear stress tests has skyrocketed. <laughs> one of the reasons it's skyrocketed is because a huge percentage of these tests are unnecessary. And how, what do they do about that? Well, it's difficult to place medicine. You know, much, a lot of medicine is subjective. It's not a classically, it's not a classic science. You have to put your hands on the patient, take a history. It's a subjective science. 
there's an opinion involved, and it would be difficult to police the doctors. So what they do instead, they say, okay, let's say we spent $2 billion. We can only spend $1.5 billion this year, and this is what they did this past year. Let's cut the reimbursements for nuclear stress tests by 36%. And like that, January 1st, 2010, nuclear stress test reimbursements are diminished by 36%. And then the good doctors are hurt. So and, um, now one of the things that, that always strikes me about um, other people being problems is that it's really hard to know what's representative of what's going on. But you're saying this is most of the internists out there are involved in these widespread sort of races. Widespread in the small community areas, absolutely widespread. It's not reported, but it is very widespread. Uh, and you'll see this pop up occasionally. You know, a doctor reported, uh, recently a doctor that I believe was working with Abbott Labs, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal, they found he was doing, you know, <clears throat> ten times the amount of cardiac casts that anyone else was doing. Or, you know, a doctor is arrested <coughs> somewhere down the line who was doing an extraordinary amount of colonoscopies. These kind of pop up, but people think they're very isolated uh, events. Yeah, I do. And I I'm think they're isolated. You, I'm telling you it's not an isolated That's event. That's scary. And it's going to become more serious because some doctors are going to be driven, driven by economics, by survival, to do more studies as big business and Medicare cut their rates or leave, or they'll leave medicine. Like you said, you know, many people from med school aren't going into internal medicine. As I wrote in my book a number of years back when I did write it, the best in the classes are no longer going into cardiothoracic surgery. They can't fill the cardiothoracic spots. They can't fill the spots. There are, there are, there are not enough candidates. But like you said, they can. it's very difficult um, to get into a program or a fellowship or a residency, rather, for dermatology. Because oh, it's extraordinarily difficult. Pain is better. Yeah, it's but the bottom people in the class will be going into cardiothoracic surgery from now on. Because cardiothoracic surgery just doesn't pay well. Because it doesn't pay well anymore. Wow. Um, I wrote uh, in one of my blogs uh, that, and this is true, that right now a... Uh, a dentist gets more for a root canal and crown than a cardiothoracic physician gets for a single vessel bypass for Medicare. I mean, it's sickening. So who's going to go into cardiothoracic surgery? I mean, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult lifestyle. It's a huge amount of angst. I mean, every person that you take care of is basically, you know, the heart is stopped, and and afterwards you have to hope that they didn't have a stroke and they do well. The anxiety is tremendous. The lifestyle is horrible. And now they're being paid, you know, less than a dentist who does a root canal and crown for a bypass. Who's going to go into cardiothoracic surgery? Not, not many people. They can't. And again, there aren't too many candidates for those positions any longer. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with Dr. Evan Levine, practicing internist and cardiologist. He's the author of the book, What Your Doctor Won't or Can't Tell You. He's basically telling us about the, the 
what is it? the epidemic, it sounds like, of duplicitous physicians who are out there practicing in small towns. This is very depressing. Okay, um, let's shift gears. Um, if going to see a doctor is, is risky, how about going to the hospital? At least you're safe there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the most dangerous places. I just had a kidney stone. I kind of took care of it at home. I did go to the emergency room to get a CAT scan, and I was out of there. Uh, even though I was sick, I actually put an IV in myself and sat at home. Going to an emergency room depends where you are. can be the most dangerous decision you're ever going to make, and especially, especially if you have heart disease or especially if you're undergoing major cardiac surgery. And, I'll, you know, I'll sort of bias my talk talking about, you know, heart disease because that's what I do and I know. Um, one of the fo- most foolish things anyone could possibly do is to go to a hospital for a cardiac angiogram, for example, where they don't perform um, stent placements or bypass surgery. So there are hospitals out there, you get an angiogram, and if something goes wrong, for, for example, you're getting an angiogram, and lo and behold, uh, they dissect one of your coronary arteries. What the heck are you going to do now? Well, if you're in a university hospital, they'll fix it right there and try to put a stent in. Or if they're unable, you'll take an elevator ride to the operating room. If you're in a small community hospital that has a cath lab, the slips face of cath labs make a lot of these small hospitals, well, then you're going to be put in an ambulance, <laughs> and you're going to take that ambulance to hopefully a hospital that's not too far away. The one you should have started an elevator anyway. ride, but you'll take an ambulance. Again, for me, if I can travel a distance for an elective procedure, I'm going to go to a university hospital, if it's in, unless it's in a very minor procedure, a hernia repair or something, and you trust the surgeon, it's a very minor same-day procedure, and you're going to leave. For a major operation, elective major operation, I'm going to go to a large university center, um, and if I'm having chest pain and I think I'm having a heart attack, I'm going to beg that ambulance driver, I'm going to beg that ambulance driver to get me to a university hospital where they can open up my artery with a stent Instead of going to a community hospital where I'm going to sit there and they're going to make a decision whether to give me a medicine that might open up my medicine, uh, my coronary arteries, uh, thrombolytic, or put me back in the ambulance and get me to uh, a university center. Um, <laughs> aside from that, the other things that are dangerous in any hospital is, let's face it, is a nosocomial infection or an infection picked up at the hospital. And, you know, I write about this, and people are becoming more aware of this, and I'm sure at your hospital, you know, there are signs all over how important it is to wash your hands, but I'm sure you and I and everyone else always see someone walk into a room, whether it's a nurse or a nurse's aide, or a handing out the food, (laughs) where they don't wash their hands. Mm -hmm. So being in a hospital is a scary place. There are serious infections. There are things that can go wrong. Um, And... For me, if I have to go to a hospital again, and it's a major surgical procedure, okay, where, for another example, where I may end up in an intensive care unit, that's another thing we should talk about. I'm going to a university hospital. The reason is, small community hospital, you're in an intensive care unit. In the evening, 
It's you and the nurse. That's all that's there. You're in the ICU, but the only the nurse is there. In the university hospital, there are residents, there are fellows, there are, uh, there are um, attending physicians on call and there, and you know, anesthesiologists, and if something goes wrong, they're right there. Yet another reason um, to be scared if you're going to have a major surgical procedure or a major procedure at a community hospital. Is there any tendency in a, in a bigger town for some of the best and brightest cardiologists and surgeons to leave the academic center because it doesn't pay well and, and to, to go to the community system across the street and provide fabulous care, um, maybe even more attentive to patient satisfaction than the university setting would be? I think that used to be the way. Um, but as you're aware of, the, uh, it's becoming more and more difficult for honest physicians who are in private practice to survive. And so the pendulum is swinging the other way that a lot of cardiologists, for example, and surgeons can no longer survive if they're honest on their own and are actually being asked, uh, are asking uh, these big hospitals to purchase their practice or going back and, and um, <laughs> looking for jobs at these university hospitals because they can't survive on their own. So things have really changed over the last few years. But you're right, in the past, in the past, and I'm a private practicing cardiologist for now, in the past, for physicians that just couldn't deal you know, with uh, the bureaucracy and uh, some of the craziness of these large university centers, and you know, maybe the chairman of the department is a is a, is a difficult individual to to get along with. Uh, um, they went into private practice, and the payment was better in private practice. But that's it's over. That huh? has changed. It doesn't exist. I'll give you a quick example: a diagnostic angiogram, cardiac catheterization now which used to pay 15 years ago about $1,800, now pays about $300 to the cardiologist. $300? Oh, my goodness. 300 bucks, yes. right, for uh -huh. a cardiac cath. Okay, now stents pay more, maybe $800. But a diagnostic cath is $300. You do, you do a cath, the person has non-obstructive disease, you're going to get paid about 300 bucks with all the risk and time and effort you had to take. Now, the hospital... For the use of that room, these are Medicare rates, the hospitals paid over $5,000, okay? It's two parts of the bill, professional, right? Mm-hmm. $300. Hospital part of the bill, $5,000. So the hospital can afford, let's say, to hire people and... Uh, increase their salary, maybe they'll give them the equivalent of $500 for the case. Because the hospital's making 5000 And the same thing goes with general surgeons. There are almost no uh, private general surgeons left. They can't afford to stay in practice or they won't accept insurance. Again, the hospital gets paid an extraordinary amount and a general surgeon for an appendectomy, uh, let's say a surgeon's on call to the emergency room, a Medicaid patient comes in, you know, they're called in for an emergent appendectomy. The surgeon's going to get paid something like $150 for that operation, but the hospital 
will be paid handsomely, thousands of dollars. I don't know the exact numbers, but thousands of dollars. And so the hospital can go out and afford and afford to hire the surgeon, you know, good surgeons, and pay them a reasonable salary. Yes. Well, the, the private the private general surgeons are out of luck. They got to leave. What you're describing sounds like uh, affects the cost to the system as a whole. But I wanted to pick up on you, you, your use of the word honesty with respect to docs and um, how doctors. Um, I hate to say this, maybe taking advantage of patients, doing things that are not to the advantage of patients. You you point out a second ago a diagnostic cath, uh, catheterization, putting a tube in in the vessels and examining, uh, what is that, injecting dye so you can see the vessels of the heart. You get 300 hours. You put a stent in, you get 800 hours. Would doctors put a stent in a patient to get that money even if they didn't need the stent? Well, there are doctors out there doing it, and it's all over the newspapers. And aside from those doctors, you know, there is a lot of literature now. People can look this up, including the, a major trial, the COURAGE trial, C-O-U-R-A-G-E, okay, which was uh, a trial a number of years back already, and other trials since that time, which shows that putting a stent in someone just because they had a positive stress test doesn't help them. Okay, doesn't help them. They can do just as well on medication. So if you look at the literature, if you practice evidence-based medicine, if you look at the millions of stents being placed in this country, and this <laughs> finally the American College of Cardiology is paying attention to this, you could assume that maybe 50% of all these stents and all these patients are doing absolutely nothing. They're doing nothing for the patient. They may relieve angina a little bit better than the medications, okay, but they're not improving survival. This does not include patients who are having a heart attack. People are having a heart attack, a STEMI heart attack. The artery is closed. There's overwhelming evidence the stent helps. But for the rest, for the person, for example, this is a worst scenario. person sees their doctor... They're 50 years of age. Maybe they have a single risk factor, hypertension. The doctor uh, rents space from an internist. He's got to pay his fees. He does a stress test. He does a nuclear stress test on the patient. Uh, it comes back abnormal. He tells the patient he should have an angiogram. He may have a blocked artery. Now, remember, the patient has no symptoms. The patient undergoes a cardiac catheterization. And lo and behold, there's a 70% lesion let's say, in the circumflex artery, which is not a major, major artery, but it's there at 70, it's not 99, the patient ends up with a stent, okay? Now they have another disease called a drug-eluting stent, and when they have a drug-eluting stent, they have to stay on aspirin and Plavix for a year, okay? I mean, this happens all the time. So um, these stents are basically, I'm sorry, just so our audience knows, the stent is designed, is is what, a small tube that holds the vessel open? It's a small tube um, that is impregnated with special chemicals that not only holds the vessel open, but it prevents the uh, healing around that vessel, which sometimes can close the stent. And because of that, because that healing is prevented, the patients must stay on uh, blood thinners, uh, called aspirin and Plavix, for at least a year. Okay. Okay? Thank you. 
Now, here's this patient who never needed the stent. He had a stress test, never should have had a stress test. It was abnormal. Had a cath. His doctor saw this lesion. What the heck? We should open it up. There is a lesion there. Oh, great. Look at this. Look at this. It looks great. Shows the patient. Look at this. It's opened up. It's 100% open. Don't worry. You just go home and ask for the platelets. Now, this has happened. I've seen cases like this. A month later, patient's in the hospital. He's got an acute gallbladder, okay? Mm-hmm. Goes to another hospital. He's got an acute gallbladder. It's a hot gallbladder. He's infected. needs to come out, right? Mm-hmm. What do you do? Some people have stopped the aspirin and plavix. The problem is when you stop the aspirin and plavix, you have, especially within the first few months, you have a substantial risk because this is a foreign material there. Okay. The stent is foreign material. That stent, once you stop the aspirin plavics, that the platelets now become more activated, and lo and behold, they adhere to this foreign body, and boom, you have a heart attack. You never would have had a heart attack before, but now, because you needed to be on that aspirin plavics, but they stopped it because they were taking you to the operating room. You end up with a heart attack. So and the first domino, the first domino to all this was getting that stress test that wasn't needed, and the only reason it was ordered was because the doctor makes money for each stress test they do. Correct. Absolutely. That's right. It's a, a scary road. Are there, do you have other examples of how patients are being taken advantage of by doctors? Well, you know, again, let's buy it with cardiology. Um, you know, what I call echomania. A lot of the internists now are out there, again, forced to make extra money. And what they're doing is they're, they're coming up with some kind of backroom scheme, either with a cardiologist or some kind of imaging center, where they start doing sonograms and, and echoes on their patients. Um, even though they've gotten zero training to do any of this, but again, an echo pays a healthy fee. A sonogram of the heart still pays about three hundred and seventy dollars. Used to be about six hundred dollars <laughs> ten years ago. So there are patients coming into internist offices, and this internist is having trouble paying his his rent himself because his fees have been reduced, and and they're resorting to to no good. So so um, so lo and behold. They're doing all kinds of uh, imaging studies and procedures. Let me go forward. Another thing that I that terribly bothers me, I, I sort of drew a line. I don't talk for pharmaceutical companies. Um, there are very good physicians, prominent physicians, that talk for pharmaceutical companies and do so um, for a little extra cash and to educate physicians, and I think that's really cool. But... As an aside, there are also some doctors out there that do so as a, as a means to get rewarded for prescribing drugs. Um, example, there are drugs out there that I'll really, if ever, prescribe. There are niche drugs. Um, there's a pharmaceutical company that's trying to sell this drug. Um, and how do they sell the drug? It's not a great drug. It's a niche drug. They have to... You know, you have to hit a billion dollars in sales to be a good to to be a drug that's worthwhile bringing to market these days. So what they'll do is the pharmaceutical companies will locate physicians who have a high volume practice, whether they're good or not, 
or, or physicians that may be on the pharmacy uh, and therapeutics committee of the hospital who make decisions whether or not to put a drug on a formulary. And they'll say, okay, we'd like you to do some uh, speaking for us. And uh, maybe they'll pay the physician a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars for a talk. But you see, these uh, talks are only as a reward to the physician. And um, what people aren't aware of, I'm sure you are, is these pharmaceutical companies know there are several agencies that that tabulate the amount of scripts that every doctor writes. They know what doctors are writing, and so some of these companies reward physicians for prescribing drugs to their patients by allowing them to give talks and of course they get paid fairly well and how is that hurting the patient well it's hurting the patient one at least in the pocketbook because very often there's a similar drug that's a generic drug that can be gotten for four dollars a month at the walmart or target costco they all have these programs for generics and maybe this drug is $2 a pill, okay? So now we're talking, uh, you know, $60 a month instead of $4 a month. So there's another example of, of how sometimes patients can be hurt, this time in the pocketbook again, um, um, by physicians who are prescribing drugs um, solely for the reason because they're being monitored by a big pharma and they're being rewarded the... Uh, um, for their prescriptions, uh, for their for the numbers, uh, uh, by uh, by uh, being allowed to talk for the company. Dr. Levine, I've already taken more of your time than I promised I would. Dr. Levine is a practicing internist and cardiologist. He's the author of the book "What Your Doctor Won't or Can't Tell You." This book is a much more in-depth and richer. Um, this provides a much more rich and, and in-depth discussion of the many issues that uh, Dr. Levine has been talking about uh, this evening, and I, um, I commend it to you. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for being on the program tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I hope I helped. Dr. Levine presents what I think is perhaps the bleakest view of U.S. medical care that I've ever seen, read, or heard. I'm sure there's a lot of validity to what he's saying, but... It's certainly not my impression of our healthcare system. It's not the experience I've had with my internist. Um, but people have different experiences. They view the world from in, in different ways. They have different observations on which um, they base their understanding of things. We need to have a representative sample. We, we just absolutely have to have it. One of the reasons I started the DrScore.com physician rating website was that so that people could see a more representative sample of what doctors are really like. Dr. Levine points to a few things that were in the news and says, this is the tip of the iceberg, and um, he may be right, or it, it may those outlandish events that we read about may be very isolated events, and uh, it, it's hard to tell. Transparency is critically important. I think the solution to a lot of the problems is for there to be more openness. Uh, if there are bad apple doctors out there taking advantage of patients, I certainly want them stopped. I think all doctors would want them stopped. And um, doctors have a responsibility, if they're seeing bad things happening, to, to try to stop um, doctors from taking advantage of patients. 
But we can't always rely on somebody else to do the job for us. And I think one of the key things um, that you can do to arm yourself is to read Dr. Levine's book. I hope you don't find it too depressing, but it's certainly one way to keep in mind to be on the lookout for tests that are unnecessary um, or other ways that you might be taken advantage of. You can also um, uh, read more of Dr. Levine's work on his blog. It's called Healthcare, a behind-the-scenes look. And it's on salon.com, and I'll provide a link to it on the Getting Better Healthcare website. Well, thank you for listening to our program today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next week, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.